This morning we're back in our Philippians series in Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I want to say it's probably on page 1167, but I, don't, I didn't put it in the worship guide there. I'll tell you in just a second. It's a great joy to be back with you and back in the pulpit and back in Philippians. Uh, I want to thank you both for your uh, generous Christmas gift to me and my family, uh, as well as time off uh, last week, which was uh, enjoy uh, to, to spend time with our family and to relax around the holidays. Um, John, who's going to be uh, uh, installed as an elder today, uh, has shepherded me and cared for me by always asking me if I've read something good lately and if I've had good runs lately. And uh, last week, that's what I did, is read and run. And so that, John knows me well, what my uh, interests are there. But, uh, but it's a joy to be back in Philippians chapter 2. It is page 1165, if you're using the church Bible. We're looking at verses 19 through 30. Let me read this passage, and then we'll reflect on it together. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. Be helpful to us to get a handle on this passage if we put it in its larger context, both historically and in, in the letter of Philippians. It can be a bit tricky to, to, to keep straight who's where and where they're planning to go in a passage like this. So let me just sketch it real quick for you, remind you. Paul is in Rome in prison. Timothy is in Rome with him, helping him out. The Philippian church, uh, which is over in what we call Greece today, has sent a gift of money with this man named Epaphroditus to provide for Paul's needs while in prison. Ancient prisons didn't provide uh, uh, food and clothing. Uh, it, it was dependent on gifts of friends and loved ones to provide those for prisoners. It probably was a relatively large amount of money, and so it's likely that others would have traveled with Epaphroditus. Either on the way to Rome, so somewhere in Greece or, or, or Europe traveling over, or once he arrived in Rome, Epaphroditus fell ill to the point that he nearly died. And now in our passage, Paul says he's planning for three different trips. First, he's sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, likely carrying the letter that we're reading. So he's writing Philippians to go with Epaphroditus back to that church. Second, Paul says he's going to send Timothy as soon as possible uh, once he knows what's going to happen uh, with his own imprisonment, what the, what, the, what the outcome is, how he will be sentenced. 
And then third, in verse 24, Paul says that he also intends to travel to Philippi. So he's planning for three separate uh, trips to Philippi. Now, this might seem like a historically interesting but ultimately inconsequential passage, but it really is important for Paul's larger argument in the letter. Since 127, Paul has been focused on the manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. This manner of life is characterized by a united mindset, laboring together, humility, considering others more important. We can call this manner of life by shorthand the mind of Christ, since in 2.4 Paul writes, have this mindset among yourselves which is yours in Christ. It's the mind you have when you're in Christ. Jesus' incarnation, humility, obedience, death, and ultimate execution are both the model and the motive for the sort of self-giving life that Paul is calling Christians to. Christians are enabled to live this manner of life as Christ dwells within them, as their minds are conformed to the mind of Christ. Now, Paul points to Timothy and Epaphroditus as two concrete examples of what it looks like to live this sort of life. Their lives manifest the mind of Christ. So this passage is not a digression or an aside that you can just jump over. It's the next logical step in Paul's argument. Look, here's what it looks like in concrete, real-life terms to live lives worthy of the gospel. And so this passage is central to Paul's argument. But we can miss its importance if we think of religious faith as an individual, private matter. I'm ordained in the PCA Presbyterian Church in America, but if you Google PCA, the top result is the Porsche Club of America, okay? You can, of course, drive a Porsche without being a member of the club, but apparently if you own a Porsche, it's good fun to join up this club and get a newsletter and talk to other Porsche drivers. Well, sometimes I think that's how we think of the church. You can have faith with or without the church, but it's good fun to sign up for this sort of club that meets together on Sunday mornings as part of, uh, you know, it's a sort of optional extra if you want. But that is clearly not how Paul thinks of the church. Paul's starting point is that God's original intention for creation was to have a joyous, worshiping community of people here on earth. So God made people and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill it up with this community of people that love me. And God's salvation in Christ has the same end, to form a joyous, worshiping community community. What we're doing right here is not an extra that you can add on to the life of faith. It's central to God's salvation purposes. In Paul's mind, faith is not a lone ranger exercise, but faith is something that is formed, nurtured, and sustained in the midst of the worshiping community. And notice it's not just a local community, that, that one church alone is enough. This section is, is about the concern between Christians in Rome and Christians in Philippi. They're in two, uh, you know, Greece and Italy, they're separate peninsulas. They're separate countries. And yet these churches have to have concern and care for each other. The individual local congregation is part of a larger network or a larger uh, uh, community of faith that indeed spreads across the whole world. Okay, hopefully that kind of helps us to get a handle on what's going on here. But the two truths I want to focus on this morning, I think kids have probably caught on that sometimes I cheat by giving about five minutes before I get to the main points. Uh, well, I cheated this morning. The two things I want to focus on this morning are this. We learn the mind of Christ by example, 
and the mind of Christ seeks others' interest. First, we learn the mind of Christ by example. We learn the mind of Christ by example. This way of life that Paul is calling us to, we learn it by example. Of course, we need scripture preached and read. And so I have devoted my entire adult life to trying to teach people how to read the Bible well, to preaching. That's important. It's necessary for forming the mind of Christ within us. But it's not sufficient in and of itself. We also need mature, living examples of what it looks like to live out the mind of Christ in the real world. So when Jesus commissions his disciples in Matthew 28, what does he say? Does he say, go and give sermons to all the nations and then they can do whatever they want? No, he says, go and make disciples. Discipleship is about life on life, uh, sharing lives together, being shaped in community. Part of discipleship is having concrete living examples to observe and imitate. And so in the next chapter that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, Paul says, join together in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who, work, uh, who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul says, keep your eyes fixed on good, faithful examples. In verse 29, Paul tells the Philippians, receive Epaphroditus with joy and honor such men, or honor such men and women. That is to say, we need to be discerning about who we're looking to as examples. And when we find good examples, we need to hold them up and receive them with joy and honor. So much of our media, social media, YouTube, cable news, is full of people setting themselves forward as examples. I've figured out life, follow my way. I know how to think about politics best, follow my way. Whatever that is, people are throwing themselves out as examples. But we need to be careful about who we're keeping our eyes on and what examples are shaping our manner of life. We need to constantly be asking ourselves, what manner of life is being set forth as an example to me in this YouTube or TikTok or whatever it is? But the sorts of examples Paul has in mind, they aren't fancy, flashy public figures who are pushing their own brand. They're ordinary Christians living out the mind of Christ in ordinary circumstances. Paul is thoughtful about his examples. Timothy is one of Paul's co-workers. Epaphroditus is from Philippi. So he's saying, here's one of mine, here's one of yours. You see the same thing in both churches. They're similar in their examples. In verse 22, he says, You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Traditionally, sons learn their father's trade by working with their fathers in the field, in the workshop, in the barn, wherever it may be. That involves spoken lessons. The father tells the son, here's how you do this. But the son also picks up all sorts of things just by seeing how his father does things, by working alongside him. Many things are easier to show than tell. So Paul's saying, look, Timothy is a reliable example because he's learned from my example and he's proven his worth by working alongside me. It seems to me there's at least three implications of verse 22 uh, for us, three applications. First, it tells us something about relationships in the church. Paul doesn't say, Timothy has served me as a son serves his father. No, he says, Timothy has served with me in the gospel. That little preposition makes all the difference. They work together, side by side, 
on the common task of advancing the gospel. Paul says, Timothy and I have been co-slaves on this common mission. That should be our attitude as well. There's no place in the church for elevating ourselves on the basis of office or experience or age or gender. Paul doesn't say, look, I'm an apostle. Timothy does what I say. He says, we work together. He works with me. We, young and old, men and women, elders in congregation, we all need to work together for the gospel. Second, verse 22 points us to the importance of training church leaders in the church. Paul's holding out a sort of apprenticeship approach. He's saying he worked with me, and that's how he became the sort of person he is. Uh, I think churches, oftentimes, we want someone to come out of seminary and to be fully formed and uh, somehow to be both 30 and already have 25 years of experience so that they don't screw up, that sort of thing. I mean, that's sort of the ideal candidate, right? Uh, but that's not the real world. Uh, ministers like leather need breaking in. And so part of the task of the church, and our church even, can be involved in this sort of training of letting people get their hands dirty doing the actual work, hosting interns, new pastors for short periods of time, that sort of thing, before sending them out. Um, I think I probably learned more about pastoral visitation by spending an afternoon visiting people with Pastor Bert than I could by reading 10 books. Uh, it's seeing it, doing it hands-on, that's how you learn this kind of stuff. But third and more generally, Paul and Timothy's relationship points to the importance of intergenerational relationships. Timothy's faith is nurtured because he works with Paul like a father and with a son. In recent research, uh, the Christian Barna group that does polling and surveys found that a meaningful relationships with older Christians uh, besides their parents was one of the key factors in why 18 to 29-year-olds stay in churches and flourish in churches. So it's, it, we need to be intentional about cultivating the sort of intergenerational relationships Paul's talking about here if we want young people to flourish in our church. But Paul doesn't just offer church leaders like Timothy as an example. Epaphroditus seems to have been an ordinary lay Christian tasked with taking the Philippians' gift from Philippi over to Rome. Pastors and elders should strive to live in an exemplary manner. But if we're going to learn the mind of Christ, what we fundamentally need is ordinary Christians who live out the mind of Christ in their lives and in their work, who show us what the manner of life worthy of the gospel looks like in the real world. It's easy to say, well, apostles or pastors or elders, they're supposed to be like that. But the Christian life is not just for specialized Christians. Every Christian is called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, exhibiting the mind of Christ to those round about them. Epaphroditus meets Paul's material needs, and he's present with Paul in prison, caring for him. And yet, in verse 25, Paul says, Epaphroditus was a minister to my needs. It's a word that usually refers to priestly service in the temple or tabernacle. What's Paul saying? He's saying when this ordinary Christian meets the ordinary needs, my ordinary needs uh, for the sake of Christ, that is priestly ministry. Learning the mind of Christ doesn't happen just by accident. We need examples. We need to be intentional as a church. Part of this is continuing to practice and cultivate hospitality. In fact, more than part of it, it's central to it. You can see exemplary Christians on Sunday morning, but we need to, to learn their example. We need to see them out in the world, at their work, in their homes. 
Again, in a privatized, individualized world, that might sound a bit weird, but God's vision for the church is not a club that believers can join if they want to. God's vision is for a community who share their lives with each other. I'm increasingly convinced that this issue of Christian examples is one of the biggest evangelistic issues facing the church today. On the one hand, various scandals in the church are negative examples that make the church repellent. And so young people look at Christian leaders who set themselves up as examples and then abuse their authority, take advantage of those under them, are living double lives, and young people rightly reject the hypocrisy they see in those examples. But often they end up rejecting the church as a whole along with those leaders. So these kind of negative examples are destroying the church. On the other hand, the Christian sexual ethic is increasingly seen as unrealistic, absurd, even monstrous. And so it is fundamentally important that we have examples, both married and single, that demonstrate the plausibility of this sort of manner of life worthy of the gospel in the area of sexuality. Marriage as an institution is increasingly seen as undesirable. Again, a sort of club you can join if you want to, but not that important. And certainly TV and movies don't offer many examples of flourishing marriages. Uh, now, I can talk about marriage from the pulpit all day long, but what people need is real-life examples of flourishing, joyous marriages. Seeing older folks who are joyous in their marriage and thinking, yeah, that's something that I want. And Christian singles, both younger and older, you have a profound opportunity to bear witness to the gospel by your manner of life. Living a, a chaste and faithful life is almost uh, uh, incomprehensible to the world round about us. And so it's a profound opportunity. But to make living a chaste and faithful single life plausible, possible, we as a church need to be a hospitable community who have singles in our home, younger and older. Well, Paul offers Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of the mind of Christ, and we need to look for examples in our midst. And one of the primary things we see in their example is this. The mind of Christ seeks others' interest. The mind of Christ seeks others' interest. This is the second truth I want to reflect on. Paul says, I have no one else available like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy has not only learned practices from Paul, that make him an effective leader, but he's learned Paul's own heart, Paul's care and concern for others. Timothy's not just going through the motions. He genuinely has heartfelt concern for the welfare of others. In verse 21, then, Paul draws this contrast between seeking our own interest on the one hand and seeking the interest of Christ. Paul's remarkable because he doesn't just seek his own interest, but he seeks the interest of Christ, which is expressed through genuine, heartfelt concern for the welfare of others. Timothy's happy to let Paul take the lead, to play second fiddle, as it were. There's no pride here. His concern is for Christ and the work of the gospel, not his own position. This is what the mind of Christ looks like. Christ gave himself for others. We follow the mind of Christ when we give ourselves for others. Indeed, that's what we see throughout this whole section here, serving each other's needs. The whole scenario begins because the Philippians, who are not rich, give in spite of their poverty to provide for Paul's needs. They put Paul's needs ahead of their own. 
And then in verse 30, Paul says that Epaphroditus completed what was lacking in your service to me. In one sense, the Philippians have given Paul a gift to sustain him in prison, but Paul speaks as if they're obligated to care for him. He says it would be lacking if Epaphroditus didn't provide this sort of care. Uh, you know, when someone needs help moving, you have a sort of mental scale in your head. Do you know what I'm talking about? If it's a coworker that just sort of works for the same business and they mention that they're moving, uh, you might help them if you have absolutely nothing else to do on the Saturday. Uh, if it's a friend, you're a little bit more obligated. If it's a close friend, you probably should help them move. And then if it's like a brother or a sister, you can hardly get out of helping them move, right? Close family. Okay, what Paul's saying here is when we are baptized into Christ, we become part of a family, and now everyone in the church is like close family brothers and sisters. You're, if you hear that they have a need, you're obligated to help them. He's saying there would be something lacking, actually, if you didn't provide for my need. We're obligated to care for our Christian brothers and sisters. Do you think about that? Your baptism entails obligations as well as benefits. Paul, uh, Paul's not just getting, the, the Philippians are seeking Paul's interest, but Paul's also seeking the Philippians' interest. Timothy is an exceptional young minister. What would our instinct be? We'd keep Timothy in Rome. We'd say, I'm doing this important work here in Rome, which is the most important city in the ancient world. I need Timothy here. But what does Paul do? He says, I'm not sending the leftovers, this guy who kind of isn't going to cut it here in Rome, I'll send him to you. No, he says, I'm going to send the best I have. I'm going to send Timothy to you. He gives the best he has for the sake of others. And then consider Epaphroditus. Paul says he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Epaphroditus is longing for his home church. He misses them. And he wants to reassure them that he's well. But Epaphroditus is prepared for the long haul. He's not leaving of his own accord. But Paul knows his desire, his longing, his distress, and so Paul chooses to send Epaphroditus home because that's what's in Epaphroditus' best interest, rather than Paul's. Again, it means loss for Paul, but he's seeking others' interest. Think about Epaphroditus' example. Paul, Paul says he's like a brother, he's a fellow worker, indeed a fellow soldier, and yet he feels deeply conflicted. Isn't that interesting to think about? We oftentimes think, if I'm doing what God wants me to, I'm going to feel happy and fulfilled all the time. And yet Epaphroditus is doing what God wants him to, caring for Paul, but he's filled with deep longing to be at his home church, and he's filled with distress and even anxiety. This is biblical realism here. Uh, there's actually another instance of it in this passage that Paul said in the last chapter, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that can sound like, uh, you know, death means nothing. But what does he say here? He says if Epaphroditus died, it would be sorrow upon sorrow. He's realistic about the effects on his own life. But Epaphroditus' example, it's important. It's, it's saying an exemplary Christian life doesn't mean being happy all the time. You might faithfully serve Christ and still struggle with anxiety or depression. In fact, the great 19th century Baptist minister Charles Spurgeon just struggled with depression throughout his life. You may, your manner of life may be totally worthy of the gospel and exemplary, and nevertheless, you might have deep, unfulfilled longings. So John Stott, for example, had a profound ministry in the 20th century and remained celibate throughout his entire long and fruitful life. Uh, and not just because that's what he wanted to do, it's because he felt like that's what he was called to do for the sake of his ministry. He still had normal human longings. 
Not only that, though, we're told Epaphroditus risked his life to minister to Paul. He showed the mind of Christ by seeking Paul's interest even at great personal cost. Epaphroditus' ministry to Paul is twofold. He was a messenger who brought funds and news from Philippi, but he was also a friend to Paul in prison. That's what Paul seems to be talking about in verse 30 when he says he made up what was lacking. It wasn't enough that Paul got the money. He needed companionship. He needed friendship. He needed what we might call a ministry of presence. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes this sort of ministry. Uh, The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian exile, see in the companionship of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. Visitor and visited in loneliness recognize in each other the Christ who is present in the body. They receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord in reverence, humility, and joy. Not every Christian can preach like Paul or Spurgeon or John Stott. Not every Christian is called to minister. But we can all follow the sort of example that Epaphroditus leads for us, or leaves for us. We can meet the material needs of others. We can provide friendly companionship to those who are lonely, to those who are in need. It may be simple, but it's not easy because we see in Epaphroditus' example, it means setting down our own interests, even our own life, to seek the interest of others. Why would someone live like this? Why would you seek the interest of others, count others more significant than yourselves? Why would someone even be willing to lay down their life for the sake of another? Isn't that living this sort of way? Isn't it just opening the door to abuse and getting taken advantage of? We need to remember the larger context of this letter of uh, uh, Paul's writing here. Paul's not just giving this as a standalone instruction, but he's developing the implications of the story of Christ that we saw earlier in this chapter. This kind of community where people are looking after each other's needs and interest, and it's a self-giving community characterized by hospitality and vibrant friendship. It's a community with a king to serve his people. And joining that community then means accepting the rule of this self-giving king. The way in, as Paul says earlier in chapter 2, is to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not like the Porsche Club of America that you just buy a Porsche and then sign up. You've got to acknowledge a king. But we become willing sacrifices and willing to sacrifice to seek the interest of others when we see Christ's sacrifice for us. We become willing even to risk our lives when we understand that Christ laid down his life for us. It's not just that he gives us an example, but Christ, by giving his life, has placed us under obligation. He gave his life for us, and if we're part of his community, we have to live in the same way we're obligated to give of ourselves for the good of others. That's the kind of community Christ has created by his death. If you're baptized into that, you're obligated to it. It's not easy, but it is beautiful. Seeing Timothy and Epaphroditus' example, seeing the Examples around us of people who give their lives, give themselves to serve others, it's a beautiful thing to see. It's humble, it's not flashy, it doesn't make the news headlines, but it is wonderful to behold. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are at work
recreating a community of joyous worshipers. We thank you that you gave your son to win back those who were in bondage to sin, to redeem them, to buy us back so that we can be part of this community. Lord, there are some here who want to be part of a community like that. I ask that by your spirit, you would be challenging them and you would be stirring them up to confess Jesus as Lord and King and so enter into this community. There's others, Lord, who hear this kind of example and they long to be part of a community like that and although they're Christians, their experience of the church has been pain and hurt. By your Holy Spirit, comfort those who have been hurt by the church. May we as a church family here at Wiser Lake Chapel be open and embracing and loving towards those who have been hurt. Let us, Lord, be challenged to live exemplary lives. Let us be discerning in who we hold up as our own examples. Let us look for the sorts of examples that Timothy and Epaphroditus give of ordinary faithful Christians living ordinary faithful lives to the glory of God. May we be captured by this idea of a beautiful community that reflects your heavenly ideals. Amen.